resurrection of Christ is so huge in its cosmic implication that anything we could say about it is horrendously too small. All our attempts to explain it or praise it are woefully inadequate. And yet this remains our central story, the central event echoing through the centuries, sounding forth the call of God in the depths of human hearts that there is hope. No matter what life brings us, there is hope. In a world filled with fear and fighting, there is hope of courage and peace. In souls battered with depression or loneliness, there is hope of happiness and companionship. In situations that seem broken beyond repair, there is hope of a new beginning. Resurrection is a message of hope. And talk of resurrection was constantly on the lips of Jesus. He discussed it with the Pharisees, prophesied about rising on the third day. He raised three people from the dead, Jairus' daughter and the widow's son at Nain, and his friend Lazarus. On that occasion, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. There is hope. The resurrection signaled Jesus' power over death for all humankind. And the empty tomb reminds us that this power is for everyone. The resurrection of Jesus is of universal significance. This empty tomb points to the necessity of transformation. That which is meant for harm through the resurrection can be transformed into something good. I mean, death transformed into life and darkness transformed into light. Struggle and pain transformed into release and healing. Guilt and shame are transformed into grace and forgiveness. The perishable for the imperishable. Dishonor for glory. There is hope in the resurrection. The tension with the resurrection is that it tells both sides of the story. The stories of death and life. The stories of darkness and light. The story of deep sadness and great joy. Bottomless despair and boundless hope tells the whole story. We've been sitting with a couple of episodes in the life of Jesus and just asking the question, how far? How far were those who encountered him willing to follow? How far are we willing to follow? Today's episode takes place during the final week of his life. I mean, the crown of thorns, his suffering before all this and before the desertions, denials, and betrayals. Actually, on the night before his final supper with the twelve, I mean, Jesus was again in Bethany for, for an evening of lot for lodging, you know. He's resting from a full day of Passover festivities in the city 
reclining at the table, enjoying a meal in the home of a man named Simon the leper, who had invited him for supper. Again, Lord, we ask that we would be good soil, that we would hear your word and allow your word to take root and produce in us an abundant crop. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. It was two days before the Passover, the festival of unleavened bread, The chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. For for they said, not during the festival, or there may be a riot among the people. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar, a very costly ointment of nard. And she broke, broke open the jar and poured the ointment on his head. But some were there who who said to one another in anger, Why was this ointment wasted in this way? This this ointment could have been, uh, you know, sold for more than 300 denarii, and the money could be given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's performed a good service for me. For you will always have the poor with you, and you can show kindness to them whenever you wish. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for its burial. Truly, I tell you, whenever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were greatly pleased and promised to give him money. So he began looking for an opportunity to betray him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord yes, endures forever. Nestled within the larger story of the priests and teachers conspiring to arrest and kill Jesus by stealth, and Judas making his move of betrayal, right here in the middle of that story, even as the final night approaches and the dreadful culmination of his ministry, it just sort of draws to a close, we find Jesus leisurely enjoying a meal because someone invited him over. (laughs) I think that's beautiful. 
And nestled further within this story, there are men reclining at the table, and certainly they're talking, and they're sharing stories, and laughing, and eating, and being served. We find a woman entering the scene. She approaches Jesus, breaks open a precious family heirloom, and pours the priceless ointment on his head. And nestled further back in her story is a moment that intrigues me. There's a moment deep in her story that stirs my imagination. What moved this woman to pick up her alabaster jar in the first place? Where was she seated? How long had she sat there reflecting? How long had that jar been in the family? How long had it had its place of honor there? I mean, what kinds of memories surrounded this jar? Maybe memories of when her mother passed this treasure onto her, and maybe words of what her mother told her. Look in her mother's eyes and just how long it had been. And now, how many days she had passed by this jar time and time again, really just hardly noticed. Just part of the humble decor. And now, what was her life like? kind of decisions had she made? What did she think about herself? How did she feel about herself? We're left with the question of what led to her decision to stand from where she was, reach for the alabaster jar, and carry it through the village step by step humbly but boldly facing the crowd's scornful indignation, all for the purpose of anointing Jesus' head. What had she heard about Jesus? What had she seen? Had they ever met or spoken? What was it about Jesus that just led her to this decision? His message or his stories? I mean, his smile, his presence, his grace, his forgiveness? And I wonder if you've had those moments in your life, those moments when you've come to a decision, reflected on your life, and it's not quite what you expected, but you've thought about Jesus, not exactly sure even, but something has stirred deep in your soul, and you make a decision to stand up and take your alabaster jar, that which is most precious in your life, your soul, and offer it to Jesus. C.H. Alford, he's passed away, but I had the privilege of knowing him and serving alongside him when we were in Florida. C.H., he was a retired pastor in his mid-80s at this that time, and he was thin and nimble and, and full of life and a bright, open face and, and a warm smile, and he greeted me on Sunday with a firm, vigorous handshake and a, hi, pastor, how you doing? And when I first arrived in Florida, C.H. approached me and invited me along to visit some of the folk of the church. 
So he made the arrangements and stopped by the church. I climbed in his tan Toyota, placing my life in his hands. C.H., he accelerated quickly and he stopped abruptly. And this took some getting used to in the heavy traffic of Pinellas County. All the while we sped to our next destination, my knuckles were white. C.H., he would tell stories while we're driving and stopping. He'd break out into song from the big band era or, or launch into a fairly good impression of Jimmy Durante or, or Richard Nixon. We scurried along and he pointed out names of waterfowl, egret, ibis, tern. But all along the way, C.H. shared his life with me. And that was a great treasure. And so I share a story with you that is sacred to me. C.H.'s father was absent. His mother was staunchly religious. She was wearing, back in the day, black, unadored dresses and her, her, her hair all tied up on her head. And she was always praying, but always worrying, emotionally fragile, financially unstable. So she sent C.H. and his brother to the Masonic Children's Home. And here, C.H. spent much of his childhood. Among the crowd of children gathering in the cafeteria, sleeping in large open rooms lined with beds and windows, navigating life with cruel children and rather harsh conditions. Saving grace for C.H. is a large wooded property that he got to explore during times of leisure. After a particularly spiteful encounter with another child, C.H. made his way to the woods. He meandered through the woods, picking up sticks, dragging them along the ground, looking to the sky, climbed into a tree, and spent the rest of the afternoon just sitting in the tree and listening, listening to the wind and listening to the birds and watching them fly, thinking about life. And something happened during that particular moment. Something stirred deep within this forgotten child to take that which was most precious of himself, his soul, and acknowledge Jesus. There wasn't a great spectacle wasn't a grand conversion. He just made a decision that what he had heard about Jesus, what he wondered about him, what he knew about him, somehow in the sanctuary of the limbs, the truth of Jesus surrounded C.H. And C.H. made a decision to take up his alabaster jar and break it open and anoint Jesus king of his life. and I'm just uncertain about what moves folks to that decision. It really remains a great mystery to me how one moment we're, we're living one way, you know, like this woman, like C.H. And then we encounter Jesus. And the next moment, our lives are somehow different. This is really something beyond my understanding, but it is the story of billions of people, of countless multitudes throughout the centuries. A story of quiet decision, which has eternal consequences. 
And I wonder how far you will follow Jesus. Will you follow him to this moment of quiet decision? To a moment where the reality of Jesus becomes more than theory or theology, but a resurrected living presence. Will you follow that far? So the first moment that intrigues me is the moment that led this one to stand up, take the alabaster jar off the shelf and go to Jesus. Something moved her in a quiet decision before she even arrived at the crowd. The other moment that intrigues me is long after the resurrection. Now, in the immediate, I'm certain the news of his death I mean, it just circulated through gossip network as it does, and certainly her heart was broken. But then, three days later, another rumor began spreading. And when rumors of the resurrection reached her ears, what went through her mind? Did a, did a smile scrape over her face? I knew it. I knew it. His presence has already resurrected my broken soul. And the moment that intrigues me is what happens years later, when she is much older and, and her daughter has grown. And there on the shelf of their home is a broken alabaster jar, sitting in its place of honor for years. moment that intrigues me is when this now aged woman removes the broken alabaster jar from the shelf and she holds it in her now wrinkled hands and she's welcomed this flood of memories she feels the unique designs and perhaps she lifts it to her nose and faint scent lingers of a once potent aroma and she sees his face she hears his words she remembers and she sits down with her daughter she begins sharing her story her moment of quiet decision and she shares the story of this broken alabaster jar what did she say how did she say it? What was going through her daughter's mind? What were her expressions? And I, I can see the love in her eyes as she begins to share her story because she's passing on this priceless family heirloom to her daughter. Not just a story of her broken alabaster jar, but the story of her broken life now redeemed. That's the essence of Christianity. That's the hope of the resurrection. Because the resurrection of Jesus is not just a historical fact, not just the theology of atonement. 
some theory of substitution. The hope of the resurrection is in the hearts of individual humans. The power of the resurrection is when his story becomes my story. And in the darkness of my life, I encounter the living presence of Jesus and somehow his resurrection transforms my darkness into light. The death that is within me when confronted with the risen presence of Jesus Christ is somehow transformed into life. Despair of my soul, cradled, nail-pierced, scarred hands of the Savior is transformed into hope. All this begins with a quiet moment of decision. Eugene Peterson writes, The resurrection, it turns out, was a quiet business that took place in a quiet place without publicity or spectators. Only the participants were involved. Resurrection is not a road show. Given the way we surround important events with attention getting publicity and considering that this is the big gospel news, this is a surprise. Resurrection doesn't need bright lights and amplification. Astonishment and wonder are enough to pull us into the resonant new life with Christ. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. And are you willing to follow him as far as this unnamed woman of the story of our friend C.H.? Are you willing to follow him to the point where astonishment and wonder are enough just to pull you into that resonant new life with Christ? Lord, today, may your resurrected presence be so near us that we are all moved to a moment of quiet decision to follow you through the darkness, through death, through despair, and trust you as you lead us into the light and life and hope that is found in you.